Good morning, everyone. Okay, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 41 to 48. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning for your written word and just that we can have the opportunity to reflect on it this morning and ask how you're speaking to us and what you're saying to us. And we pray that you'd open our hearts, Lord, to be aligned with your will and with your purpose, to feel your heart, your passion, your desires, and to walk in the way that you've called us into, um, that we would find life in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in the 1930s, a young Christian in his early 30s felt there was a desperate need in his denomination for a far more intensive training uh, institution for pastors in his country. So uh, this young guy started a seminary, a training college called uh, Finkenwald, I think is how you say it. Uh, in an old house uh, that he was given, and the training for pastors was centered on prayer. It was centered on the scriptures and confession and shared rhythms, and it was far more rigorous than anything else at that time. Uh, but when this man's, man's friends and colleagues began to read copies of his sermons and hear reports of the intensity of the discipleship at Finkenwald, questions began to arise. Was this level of formation truly necessary? Uh, would the Finkenwalders burn out? Would they lose credibility and be seen as too extreme by the denominational leadership? And uh, one of this man's friends in particular, a historian, young historian uh, named Wilhelm Niesel, came to visit being suspicious of too much spiritualism. Suspicious of too much spiritualism. So... This leader of the seminary took his friend up onto a hill overlooking a valley where if he looked in one direction, uh, across the valley, he could see the seminary, Finkenwald. But then if he turned around and looked 180 degrees to the other side of the valley, he could see an airfield and a training camp where German fighter planes were taking off and landing and soldiers moved hurriedly across according to their instructions under the Nazi regime. See, at the time, the German evangelical church had been taken over by a Nazi-controlled group, and if pastors across Germany hadn't 
sided already with the Nazi regime. They lived in fear, worried that allegiance to Jesus and not the Fuhrer would get them arrested or worse. The church was compromised and fearful. So this young man by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, one of the most exemplary disciples of Jesus of the last century, many would say, stood with his friend on that hill, his seminary on one side, training pastors for committed, dedicated, uncompromising discipleship to Jesus, and the Nazi training camp on the other side, where, as one expert puts it, Hitler sought to control the hearts and souls of Germany's citizens. And Bonhoeffer said to his friend Niesel, this must be stronger than that. Many years later, in another part of the world, another young man in his early 30s was reportedly up until four in the morning preparing a speech because that next day, hundreds of thousands of African Americans were to march on the centenary of the Emancipation Proclamation in America, calling for freedom and rights that did not yet exist for black Americans. And in his speech the next day, this man praised the words of the US Constitution and Declaration of Independence, but called Americans to live up to these words. He called all Americans to be a brotherhood, as children of God together. He called On the one hand, for an end to police brutality and laws to be changed to allow black Americans to vote. And he also urged his listeners not to give way to bitterness and hatred and physical violence. And then Martin Luther King Jr., driven by a passion to make something right that was still deeply wrong in his country, said those famous words, I have a dream. And of course, both of these men, Bonhoeffer in the 30s and then Martin Luther King Jr., both of these men were inspired by, led by, motivated by the life and words of another young man in his early 30s, who though he said things that were very gentle and loving, like, let the little children come to me, and come to me all who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And he said, my child, my, your sins are forgiven. This same man, when he found something he didn't like, we're told by the writer John that he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. If I had a trestle table here, I'd give you a demonstration. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. That's a nice way of saying that Jesus, when he saw something that he felt was deeply wrong, acted with passion and acted with intensity. We're in a a series called The Better Way, finding life and meaning and and purpose and fulfilment in the way of life that Jesus invites us into. And there's many ways of living he invites us into as part of the way of living in his footsteps. Um, I want to put to you today that there's a, a way of life that is good, a way of life that is God-honoring, and ultimately it's a, a longing and a desire that rests deep within us. But 
It's a way of living and acting that is often uh, frowned upon, especially in church, because it doesn't look like, on the surface, it matches up with the qualities of a good Christian, calm and loving and peaceful. Uh, We don't think that this way has much to do with Jesus, at least the sanitized version of Jesus we seem to have constructed in the West. And I, I call this the way of holy discontentment. The way of holy discontentment. Uh, if you want, you could call it the way of something ain't right and you'd be darn sure I'm going to do something about it. Something's not right and we need to act. The, whole, the way of holy discontentment. I think that we all have a sense within us that many things are not right with this world. Uh, We also see beauty and and wonder and we see things to celebrate. There's much good about this world, don't get me wrong. But then even if you're a glass half full kind of person, you know something's still off. Many things are still off. And in fact, part of the historic Christian belief based on the story of God and humanity in the Bible is this. It's that brokenness is in the story of God and the story of humanity. In this story... The world starts off as good. Everything is as it should be, according to how God created it, but things go wrong. And the goodness is replaced with brokenness. But another part of that same story is that there will forever be a longing in the human heart, a longing that things return to how they should be that they don't stay like this forever. And I think we feel that in our gut, whether we believe uh, that the Bible is the true story or or otherwise. We feel this in our gut. We sense that in our spirit. We see that in the world around us, that stuff's not right, and we long to do something about it. We long for something to change. I also believe that God shields us from feeling and experiencing the full extent of this, this not-rightness in the world. Right, but God Himself does experience uh, this in its fullness, and God is more broken-hearted than anyone because of this reality. But what that means for us is that we develop these passions for certain things that we see that aren't right. Maybe not everything, but it might be that uh, one person is disturbed by injustice against. Children And another person is really passionate about racial reconciliation. And others want us to care for creation better. And still others fight for women's rights or those affected by human trafficking. These are often God-given burdens, which exist because things are not right in the world and we know it. And we can do a lot of things with that. We can suppress them. We can ignore them. We can let selfish desires become stronger so that the drive to make things right is weaker. We can try to make a difference but then go, I'm getting nowhere, I'll just give up, what's the point? Or we can live in the way of holy discontentment. And what I mean is this, we can take that thing that disturbs us, that motivates us, that that creates an unsettledness or maybe even an anger in us, And we can take it to God and ask him to help us join him and play our part in making it right. 
And even if you're not a believer in the room today or you're watching online, I pray this morning that you would go, well, what would it look like to go on a journey with my passions and what's in my heart uh, with this God um, of the Bible? Put your hand up if there's something coming to mind for you, something that you're passionate about and you want to make a difference. What? Just shout out what it is. Uh, yep. To bring people to repentance and faith, yeah. Poverty, tackling poverty. Children, the rights of standing up for children. Youth, yep, reaching out to youth, youth ministry. I'm sure we all, we all have something. I mean, maybe many things, probably many things. Um, I'm passionate about a few things. One, one is that I want to see God's church fully alive and operating in its full capacity, uh, recognizing that the people of God have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have more than we could ever need to do what we are called to do. Uh, and that the challenge that we've been given by our founder, Jesus, uh, to go and make disciples is this, not this, oh my goodness, but an adventure of joy where we discover that Jesus walks alongside us and with us and blesses us on that journey. Um, I see Ezekiel 37 as a picture of the church, a, a valley of dry bones, but raised by the Spirit of God into a mighty army for the Lord. Uh, but then I look at Jesus' church in Australia, and so often... It doesn't look like a muddy army, but more like an anorexic teenager struggling to get out of bed. And it makes me sad, and it makes me angry, and it gives me this kind of discontentment, like we've got to flip the tables here. We've got to make a difference and try to make things better. Another thing I'm passionate about is coffee. I go to coffee shops and pay $5, or now it's like $5, $56 for a small flat white, and think, how on earth did they manage to make this taste like international roast? And in my mind, I start thinking, which Melbourne coffee roaster do I need to recommend to them? Or could I manage to still pastor a church if I came and be their brister as well? It's not right. Something's got to change, right? But more than these things, I think the greatest... Holy discontentment in me has to do with wanting people far from God to know Jesus. Uh, more than anything, I just want people to meet the one who gives them life, peace, joy, hope for eternity, and experience the fullness of life in relationship with him. I'm discontented by the fact that people are separated from their creator, um, but that they there is news, there is good news that by that, that through Jesus, that disconnect doesn't have to exist anymore. They can find life and relationship with God in Jesus. But there's a difference between just discontentment and holy discontentment. You can be dissatisfied, you can be uneasy or burdened by something and either not really do anything about it or try to do something but to no effect. But holy discontentment is to bring that burden before God and to resolve to walk with God in making a difference, to make the sacrifices necessary to act upon that passion in partnership with God. And I had to get real at some point and say, I have a passion to see people come to know Jesus, but I'm not doing much about it, certainly not to much effect. So I started on this journey of bringing this to God. 
beginning with simple prayers like, God, help me meet some people who don't know you. And God answered that prayer. And then it became, God, help me develop friendships with some people and uh, some of these people who don't know you. Because the reality was that as a pastor, I was in all my time with Christians. Um, so God, help me develop these, these friendships. And he answered. And then it became, God, help me develop relationships with their friends as well into their network. And God, I can't do this alone. Send me some more Christians to also speak into their life. And God, provide some ways uh, for me to open up faith conversations because I don't know how to do this. This is, this is difficult. And God, give me an opportunity to read the Bible with one of these people as I walk them towards Jesus. And God, draw them towards you so that I can see them come to faith and experience that joy with them. And God did all of it. But God did more as well because I took it to him, bringing that to God, letting God drive it, letting God lead it. That's the better way that we're invited into, holy discontentment. Um, Recent research on activism and the way various issues are being tackled in our world today, whether it be poverty or women's rights or the rights of children or whatever, um, uh, the way it's happening today shows that some humanity has a slight problem when it comes to tackling issues in our world. The newest weapon against injustices of various kinds doesn't seem to be a leadership quality or faith in a particular deity or the rise of community organisations, but a symbol on our keyboard, the hashtag, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter. These have gained significant traction through social media and the use of the hashtag on social media, Twitter and so on. Um, and a study by the Pew Research Center found that two-thirds of people agree that social media helps give a voice to underrepresented groups. But a larger share on social media uh, say that social media networking sites distract people from issues that are truly important. 71% feel that way. And 71%, sorry, 77, and 71% agree with the assertion that social media makes people believe they're making a difference when they really aren't. Hence the coining of the term, slacktivism. It's not actually making a difference. It's just sitting back and going, oh, I'll, pretend, I'll, I'll make myself feel like I'm making a difference because I clicked the like button or the share button. But even if a crowdsourced fight against injustice was, was effective in mobilising people, in trying to tackle the issues of our world, is it making our world better? Is it resulting in less distraction, sorry, less dissatisfaction, more contentment in the way things are, and a progression towards uh, the world God wants for us and what his plan is in the world? I'm not so sure that it is. The scene where Jesus enters Jerusalem and seemingly spits the dummy at what's happening in the temple, I, I think is an incredibly profound example to us and a wonderful guide for us as we choose to live in the way of holy discontentment. And there's basically three things I want to highlight from this passage that Nicole read for us today. Uh, first of all, Jesus enters Jerusalem and enters into the temple knowing what he's about to find. Now, we didn't pick this up from the passage because we read from the account of this event by the writer Luke. But Jesus driving out the money changers 
is found in all four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which in itself is saying something because that doesn't happen very often. It's a very important uh, scene. Mark's account notes that the day before this happened, the day before Jesus got out the whip, he also went into the temple and he simply looked around, observed what was happening, that people were being taken advantage of, being sold animals for the Passover sacrifice at exorbitant prices. So what was happening is the market holders there took the opportunity to sell um, at, at horrible prices because uh, people were coming in from out of town to the temple, to Jerusalem, uh, to fulfill religious duty with a sacrificial offering. And they can't bring the animals all the way with them. It's many, many, many days' work. So they have to buy something there in Jerusalem. So go- the locals are going, great opportunity to make a quick buck and to basically take advantage of the, uh, the, those coming in from out of town. Jesus sees this. And he's obviously disturbed by it. We shouldn't be taking advantages of foreigners here, but he doesn't react sporadically. He ponders, he waits. What do I want to do about this? What does God want of me here? And then he leaves and comes back the next day. I think what this says to us is if you're passionate about something, reactive action is really helpful. We need to avoid a reactivity. Oh, man, I'm just really angered by this. I've got to do something. Take it to God first. What is my role in this? What is God's role in this that's not mine? How do I partner with God in this? And then we, we don't respond in this way that's just driven out of anger and, it, and we don't get anywhere with it. Secondly, we read that Jesus comes into Jerusalem again And anger is burning in his eyes and he says, I'm going to teach these people a lesson they'll never forget. Is that what he says? (laughs) What what did he say? What's the attitude of Jesus here? Here's what Luke writes, which we read read before. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus' primary emotion here is not anger or rage or grumpiness. It's genuine love. He is heartbroken for these people. And he's not talking about the people being taken advantage of. He's talking about those doing the injustices. If only you knew what would actually bring you peace. A lot of activism these days is driven not by love, but by anger and even hate. We need to be motivated by love, not just for victim, but oppressor as well. Are we brokenhearted by the fact that a person could even want to buy and sell another human being as a commodity? Or are we just sort of disgusted by human trafficking, so we'll sign up to Ping Pong-a-thon and raise a few dollars? Do we only care for the fatherless? Or are we working our butts off to raise men who will genuinely love and protect their families? Do we just grumble about false teachers in the church who are leading people astray? Or are we passionate about bringing the pure and timeless good news of Jesus to the lost and broken? 
Where's our attitude with this? Is it motivated by love for all? Finally, Jesus enters the temple courts and he makes things right. He drives out the injustice and it is forceful, even though he's motivated with compassion and empathy and love and it's not rushed. But it's not without making it crystal clear why he's acting so passionately and forcefully. What's driving this? He's not just angry that people are being taken advantage of, although that's part of it, that you're cheating these people, really. He's completely dedicated to God's heart for all of humanity to know his goodness, pursuing God's plan and purpose. And here's why. The area that had been turned into the marketplace, or a den of robbers, as Jesus calls it, quoting from Jeremiah, uh, this was the court of the Gentiles, So the temple is in different sections, and the Jews, God's sort of chosen people at the time, able to worship in the temple. But there's a special section set aside on the outskirts just for outsiders, those who are coming in from out of town, the Gentiles. And that is the area of the temple where foreigners were allowed to come and worship and experience a taste of what God's chosen people, the Israelites, had in full measure in the rest of the temple. In other words, this was the one opportunity for God's people, the Israelites, to show God's ways and God's love to the other nations of the world, to give them a taste of God's goodness and God's presence. And instead... They shut that down and they take advantage of them. And this is why Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This place is a place where people can come from everywhere and experience the goodness of God. It's not because they're chosen specifically, but, but for everybody. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. Let me read the passage to you that he's referring to. When Jesus quotes or anyone in the New Testament quotes back a verse, it's usually referring to that whole section. And Isaiah 56 says this, For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me to hold fast to my covenant. Not to the wonderfully perfect religious people. To, the, to them I will give my, within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. These burn, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for a specific group of people? No, for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, not the insiders, the exiles, I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. God's heart is that all people from all places would come to know his goodness, his presence, his ways, his life, not just those in church. And so Jesus makes it very clear, my holy discontentment is not just my anger at something I sense is not right. This is about what God wants and what God desires, and he points to scripture at least twice to highlight this. You know, it's possible for us to feel a burden, to feel a passion, to feel something we see is not right, but it's not aligned with God's heart and God's purposes. 
You feel something deeply. You feel something strongly. But it's not actually consistent with the narrative of Scripture, which reveals God's broken heart and his plans to make things right. And we all have this at some level because our sinfulness, our brokenness, warps our passions and desires. And it even makes the things we feel feel holy when they're not. So what do you do with that? Do you just kind of go, well, who can really know the mind and the heart of God anyway? I mean, God's a mystery. So who's to say that my passions aren't aligned with God's heart? Is that what we do? My suggestion is this. Whatever drives you and you're passionate about, look for the God-given discontentment and desire underneath your passion. Go to the scriptures and go, what is really God's heart here? And you'll see what's underneath your passions and your desires and the things which drive you. And you'll be able to redirect your energy and your passion to embrace God's brokenheartedness for the world and for others. And here's why I think that that's truly the better way. Ordinary discontentment leaves you feeling perpetually discontented and dissatisfied and disappointed. And maybe through this whole message you've been going like, why is it better to be discontented? Shouldn't in contentment what we want here? Right? But this is if, if we just we go with our passions, we we at best uh, give up and at worst become bitter and jaded. Because we're just dissatisfied the whole time. But holy discontentment aligned with God's heart leads to a very strange and almost paradoxical thing. It leads to peace. Jesus said, if only you knew what gives you peace. You can simultaneously be absolutely broken by what is wrong with the world. But because you're just joining God in his plan to make it right, you have complete peace at the same time that he's in control and there's absolutely nothing to worry about. It's an amazing thing. Holy discontentment doesn't leave you discontented, dissatisfied. You become as passionate and driven and motivated and energised as you've ever been to make a difference and yet you're as rested and calm and happy as you could ever hope to be. And that's holy discontentment because you're aligned with the one who is holy and good and pure and the one who is love. So as we pray today and as we worship in response to God's word, what is it that you're burdened by? motivated by it, passionate about. Is it aligned with God's heart? Do you know? Have you searched the scriptures and gone, yes, this is what God wants? Or is this a God-given thing, but really there's something underneath? And it's just a bit misdirected. Let's pray today that God reveals to us what his heart is, what's bro- what, what breaks his heart that we would join him, the one who is capable and able to do all things, more than we could possibly imagine, that we'd join him in his work in redeeming all peoples to himself. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that any passion and desire and burden that we feel is uh, nothing compared to the, the brokenheartedness that you experience. 
Uh, we want to know you more, Lord Jesus. We don't want to be impatient people. We want to be patient. We want to be aligned with your heart and full of compassion and love, driven by what drives you, uh, aligned with you, walking in step with your spirit, that we may bear fruit uh, that brings life and peace and hope and love. We thank you for uh, your goodness to us, your grace towards us. And we pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. In Jesus' name. Amen.